2: Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodandToto.com, the
1: right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by Time's Up, the nonprofit dedicated to protecting women against predators, assuming they don't have a D before their names. This week we're we'll talking with the great Nick Searcy, veteran character actor, now he's a documentary filmmaker. His new project is Capital Punishment. Oh, does it do the work the mainstream media refuses to do regarding the January 6th riots? And how? We'll also talk with Natalie Madsen, a driving force behind the very funny sitcom Freelancers. No, it's not on Netflix or Hulu. It's on your YouTube channel or your Angel Studios app. But it's worth it. Let me, let me tell you. All the usual suspects passed on her squeaky clean show. Which is interesting because the show's crowdfunding team, well, they beg to differ. There's a lesson there, Hollywood. Maybe you want to put on your reading glasses. Wanted to start with this week's show with something I bet all movie fans can appreciate. you ever watch an actor in a single film, you can name the film, and no matter what he or she does next, no matter how many clunkers that person stars in, you never stop loving them just for that performance alone. I felt that way after seeing Begin Again. It's probably one of my favorite recent films. It's the story of a washed-up music producer who thinks that he's found a bright young new talent, except he might be falling in love with her while they record her debut album. And that's Mark Ruffalo. He's playing the producer, and Kira Knightley is the singer. The music here is just great. It's from the director of Once, so you kind of know the music is already locked in. But it's the tenderness of their bond together. I don't want to say much more about their relationship, but it's different, it's special, and it's really kind of atypical when you think of the usual rom-com romances. It's uh, really left a mark on me. I highly recommend it. Well, Mark Ruffalo came up over the weekend, and not in a really flattering way, I have to say. He tweeted out his thoughts on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the verdict like many other celebrities. And in doing so, he paid tribute to the two men that Rittenhouse killed during that not-so-peaceful protest in Kenosha. Here's Mark Ruffalo's tweet. We come together to mourn the lives lost to the same racist system that devalues black lives and devalued the lives of Anthony and JoJo. For the record, JoJo is a convicted pedophile whose rap sheet is about as gross and vile as you can possibly imagine. Now, Ruffalo wasn't alone in Hollywood in Morning Old Jojo. Pedro Pascal of The Mandalorian did pretty much the same thing on his social media feed. I don't think he called him Jojo, though, but the the, sort of the sentiment was in the same place. Now, I think we all know by now that a lot of Hollywood stars have been weighing in on this particular trial, peddling all of the same lies that our corrupt press has been peddling. They didn't do an ounce of homework, apparently, or... Maybe they know the truth and would rather virtue signal to their buddies to get a gig and maybe to improve their standing in the Hollywood community. I don't know what it is. It's just disgusting. That Ruffalo tweet really got to me. I think it's the JoJo part that really made my skin crawl. The actor is aggressively liberal. We know that. And I don't care. My wife is aggressively liberal. I don't care. We're still married. I would love debates with people who disagree with me. Let's have a talk about it. Maybe... Maybe the temperatures will get raised a little bit. Let's have a beer afterwards. It's the American way. It's what makes our country great. Seeing Ruffalo give a shout-out to a pedophile and not either understand or at least acknowledge that his gruesome crimes existed, that's hard to process. I'll never stop recommending Begin Again. i will always wait for the next great Mark Ruffalo performance, whether he's Hulk or some other character. It's still hard not to see him in a different, far less flattering light after those latest comments.
0: Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial?
1: I remember when clean comedy was a slur of sorts. Oh, she's a clean comic. Oh, he works clean. Guess I won't be laughing today. Listen, I'm from New York, maybe it's my cynical side speaking, but I used to think about clean comics, and yeah, you know, Jim Gaffigan is super clean and funny, and Jerry Seinfeld certainly falls in that category, but I kind of like some edge to my comedy, and I don't mind if it's R-rated. And yet here's dry bar comedy, and it's an absolute sensation. You haven't seen any dry bar videos. They're really funny. Think top-tier comics telling jokes you can laugh at with your mom, your dad, your grandma, your kids, the whole family. How refreshing. Turns out my mom and my wife both recommended dry bar comedy to me a few months ago. They didn't mention the fact that it was clean. They just independently discovered it and said, oh gosh, this is really funny. And you know, I think the same is true for freelancers. The sitcom, which you can watch on either YouTube or Angel Studios via their app, it follows a group of hapless entrepreneurs trying to make a go of it with their video production company called, what else? VPC. Guess what that stands for. Natalie Madsen is a writer on the show, and she's also the showrunner for its second season, Out Now. I brought her on Ride on Hollywood to give us a kind of an inside look at the making of Freelancers and find out just how those funny bits happen. Natalie, you strike me as someone who is growing up, creating, performing, putting on shows from a very early age. You now, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe just confirm that. That's suspicious Confirmed. when I think about it. Think about, okay.
0: Confirmed. Me. I have... Um... Four sisters and one brother, and I made them do videos constantly. Gotcha. And little, yeah, confirmed.
1: And w- what was it like? How did it take shape? What were the subjects? Give me, give me kind of a, a little taste of the flavor of those, of those early bits.
0: You know, when I was little, I um, we loved doing like parody exercise tapes. I'm trying <laughs> to think of some. Of the, I haven't watched them in years, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, I love to just kind of play zany characters. I just love to make people laugh. I, I always say, um, when I was little, my dad, my dad has a great laugh, but he doesn't give it freely, if that makes sense. Like oh, yeah, he's not absolutely. One did, like a pity laugh. Uh-huh. And I remember once when I was little, I made him laugh really hard. And I feel like I've just been chasing that high ever since. That's basically it. That's funny. <laughs> that sums it up.
1: I actually, not that I'm a comedian like yourself, but when I can make my youngest son laugh, it, it's like an extra coup. It's like, oh, I, I, Right?
0: I <laughs> it does. It feels like you're getting away with something. It's a yeah. great feeling.
1: Excellent. Now, obviously, uh, you grew up have different accomplishments but studio c is so interesting and i think in part because it really created a groundswell it was a huge online audience i'm sure it was formative for you in many ways but when you think back at those days what really jumps out at you i guess from a creative perspective what maybe kind of a leap and and how you were you able to kind of do sketch performances connecting with your colleagues what what, what sort of is the uh the standout memory from that time
0: you know, it was, um, we were on the show for eight years, and even before then, we were a college group together for four years um, at BYU, and so, um, honestly, I have really, really great memories. I mean, obviously, we're still creating things together, sure. so we love each other, and it's where our um, our creative language was definitely built during those four years at at school, and then just, I feel like, I perfected is too strong of a word, but developed even more during our Studio C years. And I think something that's so special about the Studio C years is when we were in college and we were doing the sketch group, we would always say like, wouldn't this be amazing if we could ever get paid to do this? But that would never happen, like never. Um, The sketch group we were in has been around for decades. It's still around today. And it had never turned it into a professional thing for almost anyone that was a part of it. It was just a really fun extracurricular thing. And so we all have degrees in all sorts of stuff, advertising, PR, engineering, psychology. A couple people did film, but, you know, we were all studying to be something else. And then um, we got to film the first season of Studio C and they would just say, don't quit your day job. You know, we (laughs) all had our, we all would work during the day and then go at night to rehearse for this little show because we just had no idea what it would be. But. We were having fun and we were just kind of, you know, this feels fun. This feels like a fun, exciting thing to do. And we never in a million years would have guessed what happened just because we were doing fun stuff.
1: And I would think there's a lesson there in that you can't just be an entertainer today sometimes that you really do have to have a little bit of business savvy to pull it off to kind of corral resources. And I imagine that's been part of your education as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Especially the last few years. Um, in our Studio C days, you know, that our main worry was, of course, we're, we're with a network. And so our main worry is writing and acting and producing and directing, you know, that just kind of creating the actual thing. And uh, we stepped away and made our own company called JK Studios coming up on three years ago now, uh, maybe more like two, I don't know, it's been a long couple of years. <laughs> and a, a big part of that education has been, okay, we don't have a network funding projects anymore. How do we how do we come up with the resources we need? How do we get creative? How do we look at merchandise or other things? You're right. It's it's really like if, if you want to be in the creative field, um, if you have if you have any sort of business education, it only helps be able to make the things that you're writing.
1: And it's one thing to pull off a sketch and to be funny and to kind of, they can be really short in, in scope yeah. and size. But when you wanted to kind of tackle a sitcom, which is really freelancers as a it's just kind of a yeah. classic sitcom. That's a whole new level. Uh, talk about sort of, was that intimidating? Did you think that that was sort of the natural, next organic step? How did you kind of get to that place?
0: Yeah, well, our show creator, Mallory Everton, has had this idea for freelancers for a long time. And um, it was always something we wanted to explore. Like I said, we were doing sketch comedy for eight years and then even four years before that. So, and we love sketch comedy. We'll probably do sketch comedy again. You know, like like we just... we'll always love it. But um, movies and sitcoms always sounded exciting to us. And so when we were able to step away and kind of steer our own ship a little bit, um, this freelancer's idea was like number one on the list. Uh, Mainly because it's just so meta. It's about five best friends trying to make it in the world and trying to, you know, they want to be filmmakers, but they have to take all these silly jobs and local ads and all that kind of stuff to make ends meet. Um so obviously very meta it's, we're, we're best friends trying to make it they're best friends trying to make it of course it's a little more exaggerated in the sitcom world <laughs> but we just love the message of kind of friendship when the world is against you 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 can corral around your friends and um we just as a creative group we're so close that um we just wanted that kind of message to go out into the world a big part of what we want to do with our sitcoms is make people feel like they're also a part of our friend group. So you you belong here. You're you're one of the freelancers. You're <laughs> one of the friends. Um, you have inside jokes with us. You're you're. We want people to feel like they belong um, when they watch our stuff.
1: Gotcha. You know I understand that the that you originally pitched this to more traditional streamers, weren't successful, and now you're being successful on your own terms. Maybe in a way, maybe this is a better fit for the Angel Studios app and also YouTube. It, it, like my kids consume content on YouTube and, and watching TV seems like a chore for them. Oh, I, I have to sit down and, and go in the movie room and actually watch it. I, I, th- I think, yeah. you know, maybe in 10, 20 years, this is sort of the more, the more traditional, normal approach. Talk about sort of right. going the online route, which again, a while ago would have sounded desperate. And today it sounds inventive, and if not necessary.
0: And you, you know what, I think um, the crowdfunding aspect of working with Angel Studios has been so enlightening and empowering. Um, it's almost like people, you know, people are paying for it before it even exists. It's a great way to gauge interest for what you're about mm-hmm. to do, right? So if you can't crowdfund a project, there's not enough people that are excited enough to watch it, that's a great indicator that maybe you should be working on something else. And the fact that we were able to fully fund, we reached our legal limit um, for the season uh, people were so excited. It was such a special and humbling time to see our fans really like take action to make more content happen. It makes us feel way more connected to the audience. Like we, we literally obviously could not have done it without our audience. Mm-hmm. There, it wouldn't exist without them. And so I think that connection is really unique and exciting. We had over 3000 investors into the show. And right there you have a little 3000 person marketing army who is you know so excited that this is coming out and telling their friends about it and i think with the online the streaming the future of um shows i i feel like that word of mouth is so powerful like i don't know about you but if my friends say hey i watch the show on netflix i'm more likely to watch that show right oh yeah rather than it's just recommended for you or it's in the top 10 in the us doesn't necessarily mean i'm going to click on it but if the people i know and um the people whose opinion I really respect say you got to watch this. Then I'm going to watch it. Yep. And so I think kind of activating the audience in that way um, has been really, really amazing. And I, I, I think there's a lot more in store at Angel Studios because of that. They're really enabling the the powers in the audience. You know what I mean? Yeah, Which absolutely. Is, um, Nerve-wracking, but also amazing <laughs> when you have such a supportive audience like, like we do.
1: Now, obviously, Freelancers Season 2 has a, a bigger budget. You had more resources, longer episodes. It also – I'm watching an episode just before we started talking, and I'm thinking, if I watched this on TV, if this was a Netflix show or Hulu – I wouldn't blink an eye. There's nothing different about it from a production point of view. And I'm going to guess that you were much more uh, wise in your resource allotment than than a Netflix show. Can you talk a little bit about sort of kind of ways that cut corners is maybe kind of a negative way to frame it, but kind of staging Sorry. a show like this, making it look like anything else you see on TV, but also doing it at a much tighter price point. Is there Absolutely. is there sort of a secret or two you can share without giving away too much? Yeah.
0: So, I mean, like like, like I said, we crowdfunded The Legal Limit, which was just over a million dollars, which, you know, to the average person, that sounds like, oh my gosh, that's an insane amount. It is, it's a lot of <laughs> money. I'm not saying that it's not. But, you know, a typical sitcom like ours with eight episodes that are 24 minutes each, a, a small budget in Hollywood is 10 million yep. for that kind of project, right? So, like, it's still we are grassroots indie, you know. We're we're definitely trying to make it work. Um, I think our experience with our amazing crew, we we have our go-to people that just kind of understand. They're able to work so hard, but I mean, it's been a it's been a lot of work on a lot of people um, to make this happen. And no one's no one's making a bunch of money off of it. I'll mm-hmm. just say that you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Like every everyone just believes in the project so much that they're willing to just kind of you know power through and kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel if there's money to be paid great if not we just really want to get this out yeah um and so i think it really helps when you have a, a crew and a cast that are just so Passionate about a show and just love the show so much.
1: Interesting. Um, it, it actually so anyways, felt to me like a, almost like a Tina Fey show, where the comedy is oh, dense, and I mean it as a compliment. Like there's a lot of yeah. jokes and nods and asides, all kind of right. <laughs> all kind of jam packed into this one story, which is not easy to yeah, accomplish, and, I'm sure.
0: Um, I think, I mean, credit goes to our uh, show creator and showrunner Mallory Everton. Where her goal is always to pack in jokes we we love that rewatch value mm. we want you to watch the like you're on your third watch of that episode and you just caught another joke yeah um i think it's so important especially like you say especially when people are consuming so much on their phones or like smaller devices maybe their TVs is the biggest thing they'll watch it on um when you're when you have such a personal intimate connection to the to that viewing um we really want it to be worthwhile uh, what's interesting, we we did a few test screenings a few while back on some first edits to test jokes and things, how it was going. We did it in a movie theater and we realized that the pace is almost too fast for a movie theater. Oh, interesting. There's, there's so take, you know what I mean? There's yeah, so much yeah. to take in. their sound that like sometimes jokes would really fly over people's heads, um, but now testing it the, the way that people are consuming it now, I feel like hopefully people are liking it. That's that's definitely the goal. We wanted to have a very 30 rock-esque mm-hmm. pacing of it. joke, 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 Yeah, <laughs> lots of jokes.
1: You know, I, I know the term clean comedy is thrown around a lot. And I think for a while, there was a sense that that was almost like an insult. Oh, it's a clean comic. that and Oh, like, I think
0: I think that's still there.
1: <laughs> but you I know, think, with, with freelancers and dry bar comedy, I, I'm seeing uh, it's almost hip to be clean these days. Is, is, is that fair? Or is that just uh, my interpretation?
0: You know what? I hope that we get there. At least like when, when I'm talking to other people and like when we pitched this in LA before and other things. We use the term family friendly. We use the term clean, and it's it's accurate. That's what we do. But I think a lot of times when people hear clean comedy, they think like a Disney Channel sitcom mm-hmm. with a terrible laugh track and like <laughs> awful jokes and like yeah. bo- you know like slipping on a banana peel kind of stuff. Um, but honestly, we just write what we think is funny and what we would want to watch as you know early thirty year old comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, we we just want to make a show that. We would want to watch and we do watch it. You know, like I, I watch with my kids and my kids love it, which is everything, right? That's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, the fact that it that kids can watch it is wonderful. But we have even in Studio C days, we've never sat down and said, okay, how can we write a sketch for kids? We we think kids are really smart. So let's just write what we think is funny. Don't write down to your audience, right? And the fact that there is no swearing, there's no innuendo, there's no you know, the, the list is long of things mm. that, it, that it could be that it isn't. Um, it's just like a, it's a nice byproduct. And l- like I said, we just never try to be exclusive with our comedy or alienating. We want people to feel like they're in on the joke always.
1: Yeah. You know, because the show has that intimate feel, you mentioned that connects with fans, they're crowdfunding, they're responding, I'm sure, on YouTube and, and uh, other venues Does it change what you do at all? Does it influence or flavor? Do you get feedback that sort of tells you this joke landed harder or this idea, or is it just sort of the, the feedback's great, but we have to kind of follow our muse?
0: I think feedback is vital in comedy. So we will always, always get feedback for the freelancers process. We did table reads in front of an audience before we even, you know, just to finalize our scripts. Um, we did, like I said, we did like edit testing and movie theaters. We did that a few times. Um, we showed it to people. We, tr- we we got people's opinions. I think feedback is so important. Um, I don't remember who said this. It might have been Conan, but a, a famous comedian. Don't quote me on who it is. I don't know who it is, but <laughs> they basically said, "Oh no, it was Ron Howard." Now I remember. Ron Howard said, "Listen to every or hear everyone, but listen to yourself." Yeah. So he, hear all the feedback. Um, it's so important, but at the end of the day, we do have, as creators have like a gut check, we know what the show is better than anyone. Um, so to, to make sure that's still true to the story we're trying to tell or the joke we're trying to tell. Um, but even in our, in our edits, you know, we'll put in multiple options for different jokes and we play in front of a crowd and this one landed and this one didn't and out it goes all the time, all the time.
1: Interesting. Uh, I think I read that you had followed Monty Python as a younger person. That was sort of part of your comedy influence growing sure. up. Are there any current comedians or shows that you enjoy that you could share that maybe maybe even things that are under the radar perhaps because I think I think you can you know okay Ted Lasso solid show I think everyone has told us oh, that sure. I get it but anything sort of that's maybe less appreciated that you've kind of noticed along the way?
0: Um uh, one thing I, I one thing I'll say about Ted Lasso even though you're asking for not Ted
1: Lasso.
0: <laughs> um Ted, Ted Lasso is a great example. I mean not exactly family friendly. There's some swearing mm. there but um, it's about it's it's a it's a comedy that makes you feel lighter somehow yeah, yeah. right there's there's this kind of joy to it um, a a person we were just meeting with um, out of L A called our group the Ted Lasso sketch comedy and I almost fainted <laughs> I <was> like <laughs> we're not that good but he was just saying you know there's there's something about that Ted Lasso is just a nice guy trying to make it in the world and you feel for him and you feel lighter and uplifted after watching it. And I think that's always what we're trying to do yeah. as far as comedians. Now yeah. I just love, love, love. There's so many, I mean, obviously Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, anything they make, I will run to. And even as, um, with the season two of freelancers, this is my first time executive producing. And so I just appreciate, and I, I'm a mother, Tina Faye's a mother. She's an executive producer. She's making all this stuff. I appreciate her more now than ever. Um, but I, I think she's brilliant. Um, you know, uh, I will say Freelancers, I feel like, has been compared to New Girl, 30 Rock, Always Sunny, which, and we all love those shows. I will always, always love Parks and Rec. You know, it's, it's nothing nothing too under the radar mm-hmm. here, but... Yeah. Uh, the the thing I love about Parks and Rec is it's about friendship, really. First and foremost, it's about relationships, and those characters are just so good that, I mean, those characters could go anywhere, and I'd, I'd want to watch what they were up to, right? Because I yeah. just love them.
1: You know, I think it's one of the reasons why the show Friends had such a has such a, a connection with audiences because they were our friends. And, and that sounds like a corny right. thing to say, but we connected yeah. with them in a way that they, they stuck together with each other. And I think even for our own friendships, when sometimes our a friend will disappoint you or not, not stand up for yeah. you or something, they didn't do that. And by the way, you know, when I watch Ted Lasso, which is a very funny show, the R-rated moments are almost wildly unnecessary, I have to say. It, it's it's almost jarring. I think, sure. gosh, you could have taken out that, that F-bomb and my kid could be watching it and having a great time. So uh, it is odd that they kind of put that in there. It seems a little bit, uh, I don't know if incongruous is the right word, but just out of left field, perhaps.
0: Sure. But you know what? I, um, I I feel like I am in no place to criticize the creative <laughs> Ted Lasso because I think it's almost a perfect show. But yeah, I, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I absolutely hear what you're saying, for sure. Yeah. And I think um, we are, we, yeah, we're nothing but inspired by Ted Lasso and that storyline. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I, but I, I think that the real thing people love is that, you know, you're you just you feel for these people. They're all trying their best. It feels like the world is against them. They're kind of the underdog um you just you just love what they're doing and that's what we're going for in freelancers as well you just want to you know they're all such zany characters they're all kind of exaggerations of the actors who play them basically uh that's not always true but that's basically that's basically true um at least amongst our main characters and so um just being able to see that come to life and see our dynamic and our friendships kind of reflected in a show is so personal to us and meaningful for us for sure
1: Excellent. Well, last question. I think there's a musical uh, component coming up to a new uh, new episode coming soon. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Okay. I am so excited. So uh-huh. it'll be, um, I should know the date, uh, but it'll be mi- uh, mid-December. It's our second to last episode. Excellent. Um, so I, th- I think it's the second week of December. It'll come out. And it is a musical episode, <laughs> and we are so excited. Well, it's been, I'll, I'll, <laughs> it's been tons of work, but tons of fun.
1: I'm sure. On that note, is there anything? If, assuming a third freelancer season happens, are there any kind of other, either twists or maybe more ambitious components you'd like to add, or is it, is, or is it just going to keep it on keep it on the show?
0: We have such a long list of things <laughs> we would love to do with these characters in this world. We'd we'd love for them to travel somewhere. Mm-hmm know, do, do some sort of on-location episode. Um, we've 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 talked about depending on how the musical goes, we might do more of those. Um, there's a couple like really deep inside jokes in the show. Like there's a there's a made-up TV show that they mentioned a few times. Mm-hmm. We'd love to do an episode of that made-up <laughs> TV show. Um, there's so much more to dig into. So we're definitely thinking about a season three. We're trying not to put the cart before the horse. We have to mm-hmm. see how the season goes. Um, but we're definitely, definitely down to make more of this, of this world for sure. We've, we've, we've got a long list and it's only growing.
1: So. Excellent. Well, Natalie, thank you for joining right on Hollywood. The show of course is freelancers and it's as clean as it is funny. And that's refreshing and true and uplifting for sure. Natalie, thanks again. Keep up the great work. And, uh, it's just it's a fun show to watch and it's empowering to see that the while the, the sort of the mainstream suits turn this down, the regular people said, no, we want to see more of it. So uh, that's a good thing. Thanks again. Thank you. This week's Toto's take is crawl. Director Quentin Tarantino loves this movie. I think he said it was one of his favorites, if not his favorite, movie of 2019. And who am I going to argue with him? I don't even think there are any foot close-ups in the movie, and he still loved it. The film stars a young woman who, with a strained relationship with her dad, but that gets pushed aside when a massive storm hits their small Florida town. The floodwaters rise, her dad is missing, she goes to look for him. And before she knows it, she, before she knows it she's got some company, some sizable crocs, are closing in, and she'll have to use all her survival instincts just to save her dad and her own skin. Now, this is pure genre filmmaking, and I say that with all the all the warmth and affection I possibly can. There aren't nuanced themes at play here. No one's acting up a storm. It's just slick. It's fast-paced. It's the kind of story that pushes you to the edge of the seat and makes sure you stay there for a while. I like that. Now, I know Tarantino loves grindhouse movies, and I do, too. This is a really good example of a modern film that really kind of fits right in that category. Crawl is available right now on Hulu. I recently had the chance to meet Nick Cersei on a movie set. Let's just say he was in his element, and you can see that a mile away. The movie itself was Terror on the Prairie, and as soon as that darn embargo lifts, I'll share more about my experiences on the movie set. You know, these days, though, Nick isn't content just being an actor for hire. He's also developing other projects, including documentaries, where he's flexing his skills and also telling stories that aren't being told elsewhere. It's safe to say the capital punishment falls squarely in that category. The new documentary is out Thanksgiving Day, and you can find it at CapitalPunishmentTheMovie.com. Nick and company talked to Trump fans who had been hounded by the FBI for attending that infamous January 6th protest. Nick was there that day, too. And one of the reasons why he made that movie is because after he left, he saw a lot of things in the news that didn't really square with his experience there. He wasn't in the Capitol, but he saw the tenor of the protests, met lots and lots of people, had his camera swinging, wildly capturing some of the uh, protests and some of the speeches. Something didn't smell right to him, and he decided to investigate, and that's where capital Punishment comes from. Now, you know the media has little interest in anything but the so-called insurrection mantra. Well, that's why you need a movie like Capital Punishment. Nick is the kind of guy who doesn't hold back. If you follow him on Twitter you know what I mean. And I haven't been able to screen Capital Punishment just yet, but I expect that old Nick energy, that Nick passion, the Nick bravery is right there in the film. Here's my chat with actor slash producer, Nick Searcy. Nick, I think the best way to start talking about Capital Punishment is to use a line from the actual trailer, your line. You say, it's an insurrection without arms. What are they talking about? And I think for many people, that's sort of, if not shocking, or maybe it's just unexpected. Can you break down that element of this whole story about January 6th? Because I think it's maybe one of the most misunderstood elements and something that the media has not done a good job of clarifying. So maybe just kind of drill down there, then we'll kind of expand.
2: Well, I, you know, I was there on January 6th myself, so I saw what I saw, and, uh, you know, I didn't see any, I was not around the place where there were people breaking windows and stuff, so I didn't see any of that, because that, there was such a vast sea of people there, and, and that's when I went home, and when I, you know, all the news about it, it was like, the, the media was intentionally leaving out, number one, how many people were actually there. There were about two million people there, not a few thousand. And number two, they were leaving out that the vast, vast, vast majority of the people that were there were just people with unarmed with anything other than flags or selfie sticks or iPhones. You know, that and it's like they start calling it an insurrection, an attack on the Capitol. And I'm thinking, what are they attacking with? I mean, if this was an insurrection. Don't you think they at least brought a a knife or something, a gun? But it was, you know, totally unarmed people. I saw people singing and singing hymns and saying the Pledge of Allegiance and nothing on the news showed what I had seen. And that's kind of what I thought was important to bring out in the movie is just all the stuff the media was intentionally leaving out so they could push this narrative that this was the worst thing that had ever happened in America and that all Trump supporters were racist and all that stuff.
1: Now, obviously, you did a lot of research before and during the making of this documentary. How do you do that these days? And this is a question that I, I kind of struggle with. Where do you go for trustworthy information? I mean, there's so much lying and so much misinformation in mainstream sources. Where, where do you go as an American to find out more information that you feel you can trust?
2: You know, you have to really selectively choose the people that you think are telling you the truth, you know, because obviously the media is lying, the mainstream media. So basically what we did was go to individuals. We go to people like Julie Kelly at American Greatness, who has been a real champion of the, the victims of all this persecution that's being perpetrated by the FBI and the Justice Department. And, you know, we were lucky enough to have some kind of inside sources, former FBI agents like John Guandolo, um, uh, former DEA agents like Mark Ibrahim. We were able to sort of put the story together by going to firsthand individual sources rather than trusting journalists, you know, (laughs) journalismists or whatever they're called (laughs) these days.
1: You, uh, you shared a few clips from the movie. I haven't seen the whole film yet. I will, I'm sure. But, uh, the stuff that I saw was shocking, and and you know people talking about how the FBI raided their houses, guns drawn, uh, you know the red the red light of the the scope in their face, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Is is there one story in your film, and I don't, yeah, I don't want you to give away too much, but it just or even just one anecdote that really chills you when you think about it, when you're filming, and even just looking back at the project now.
2: Well, the more we went along talking to these people who had been basically terrorized by the FBI every story is about the same six o'clock in the morning 70 or 80 FBI agents with armored vehicles SWAT team everything uh screaming at them to come out of their houses with their hands up breaking down their doors every single one of these people that we talked to never had been in trouble they'd never been arrested for anything before This is not like career criminals that they've finally caught or something. These are people that have really never been in in, in trouble with the law before and they're being treated like serial killers or cartel drug leaders. And the one story that really still haunts me is the story of the Martinez family, you know, man with three children and uh, they come to his house, they bust in his sliding glass door, his back door, their dog runs out and disappears for a week. And the, the little girl, 13-year-old Isabel Martinez says that the reason she couldn't grab her dog is that the FBI handcuffed her.
1: A 13-year-old I, girl.
2: 13-year-old girl, and I was just, that was shocking. I was like, they handcuffed you? A 13-year-old girl? And she said, yeah. Yeah, they told me to put my hands behind my back, you know? And it's like, at that point, you just start going, okay, there's no reason for this that has a legal basis. This is terrorization. They are trying to terrorize these people and let it spread through the community so that people will go, okay, I better not say anything bad about my government because look what happened to the Martinez family. It's, It's really sick and insidious. And the more we talk to people, the more convicted I got that this was something that had to be brought to light and that it was just wrong and that no American, should stand behind this. I don't care what party you are. It's just not right for the FBI to be treating people this way. When it, it, I mean, you're talking about people that have never been arrested. If there's a problem, call them on the phone and say, we'd like to talk to you. you know, that, yeah. That's how you treat people like that, not by breaking down their doors.
1: You know, I hadn't seen the footage of Ashley Babbitt's final moments until recently. I I didn't realize, you know, I I do, I consume a lot of news, but just things escape me. And I, I was certainly highly skeptical of the reasons for her death and why there was a shooting in the first place. But recently I saw it and it's, it's including your film as well. I, I, it's, I, 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 I've, I'm having trouble finding the words to describe my reaction to seeing a woman shot and killed when she clearly posed no danger and the media and the government said said that this was a justified killing. What was your reaction when you first saw that footage? It, I mean, I, I, I'm still processing it, and it was a couple days ago.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's shocking. We we, uh, we showed the whole thing in the film. Um, and the, the thing that's shocking to me is the, the Capitol policeman, has his gun out and is pointing at that door before Ashley Babbitt is even there. He's got the gun out. He's holding it right there. You can see him. He's holding it up for about 30 seconds until she gets in the window and then he shoots and there's no verbal command. There's no stop, get back. I'm going to shoot. There's nothing. And it just seems so insane to me. It's, it's deliberate. It's, it's as if somebody told that guy, go to, go down there. And if anybody comes through that door, shoot them. And like, he didn't think about anything but that. So he didn't, he didn't try to assess whether or not Ashley Babbitt was an actual threat. He didn't try anything else. He was following whatever orders he was given. If anybody comes through that door, shoot them. And then, you know, he murdered her. She's on, she's unarmed, no threat. Her husband talks about in the movie, in my movie, about how she knew the rules of engagement, the rules of using deadly force. And if, if any of those procedures had been followed, for example, if the Capitol policeman had said, get back or I'm going to shoot, he said, Ashley would have known right away. Her hands would have come off that door and she would have backed off. But she never received a warning. And that's murder.
1: Yeah. Book. You know, I I think if this whole situation happened 10 years ago, certainly 20, we wouldn't get your movie. We wouldn't get Patriot Purge, which is Tucker Carlson's docu-series, which has some overlap here. Now we do. Now there's alternate media. media. You've got websites. You've got different platforms. Talk a little bit about sort of that and where this message, your message, would not get out – Unless there was a website willing to post it, unless there was a Fox Nation willing to kind of share something similar, I, I mean, they, there must be some comfort there that y- that your 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 take on this is will be heard and will be seen and will be processed.
2: Yeah, well, I've been raving about you know we need a new Hollywood for about a couple of years now, and that's it's finally kind of coming to pass. You know, in baby steps. Of course, we we got a long way to go, but. I would say even two, three years ago, you know, the gatekeepers of Hollywood, the Netflixes and the Amazon Prime's and, you know, the people that control the content that is delivered, they would not allow something like this on their platform. They wouldn't allow it to this day. And so what we have to do is just accept the fact that Hollywood has destroyed itself. It is, it no longer cares about the audience. It's no longer beholden to them. The audience is no longer the source of Hollywood's income. So we have to go around them. We have to build our own things and allow our audience to access our material directly rather than going through the gatekeepers. And that's what's happened is now we don't need them anymore. And you know, people are always asking me, you know, are you afraid Hollywood's never gonna let you back in because of the stances that you've taken or the movies that you've made? And I tell them, I don't wanna get back in. I want to build something new. I want to to go around them and make them irrelevant. And uh, I think that if this movie's successful, that will go a long way for, towards doing that.
1: Now, movies are never easy to make. They're never easy to fund, even when you have a a big A-list direct director actor. There's always you know got to scramble for money. Was this or a hard film and television exactly star? exactly even in your case was this hard to assemble? I mean, obviously it's done. Uh, I don't want to say it's fairly quickly i mean january 6 was you know nine ten months ago you put this all together it's ready to roll just talk real briefly about sort of that process because you've obviously done it you were able to succeed in this mission that's not easy not every filmmaker can make that happen so maybe i don't get too in the weeds about sort of the, the behind the scenes but can you just share a little bit about how this came to be so quickly and how you're kind of assembled it?
2: well the um the way it came to be is that in 2020, I made a documentary. I was commissioned to make a documentary in 2020 by the Western Conservative Summit, called "America, America, God Shed His Grace on Thee," and it was an exploration of the Bible and the Constitution, the relationship between uh, God, religious uh, religion, and and America, basically, and tracking it through the years. And so we, sh- this movie, did well for the Western Conservative Summit and. A lot of people saw it, and we went down to a convention last March in Florida, and we showed the film there, and at the end of the screening, somebody came up and said, do you want to make another one? And my partner, Chris, said, yeah, we'd like to make one about January 6th, because both of us were there. And I was like, wait a minute. He was there. I wasn't there. He was there. <laughs> But um, basically, the, the man said, uh, you know, how much do you need? to to do it wow and uh, we we gave him a ridiculously low number uh, (laughs) kicked ourselves ever since but we we, you know he we got the money that way they had seen a a previous work and said we want you to make another one
1: but i mean there's a lesson there you know the gosnell movie which was excellent didn't break the bank you know no safe spaces i think was maybe one to two million at best these are and uncle tom came out and quickly uh made its money back and then some, these projects yeah. are almost all succeeding and yet there's still reticence, I'm sure. Do you find that when you, either for other projects or these projects, is it getting maybe a little easier to get funding where people are saying, oh gosh, not only it's not going to make me, uh, you know, not going to send me to the poorhouse. there's a great chance I'm going to recoup my investment. W- w- any sense that way?
2: Yeah, I mean, it. it, you know, to be honest, it's, it's easier and cheaper to make a documentary. You know that that's just the fact because you're not paying salaries. You have a very small crew. You're basically doing interviews and 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 using news, uh, fair use of news reporting and that sort of thing. So it's it's a little bit less of a it's a, it's more of a struggle to get funding for like a a, a Gosnell like a narrative mm-hmm. feature with actors and that's that's really where my interest is. That's what I'm trying to do next. And you know part of the scheme I have in my head is if this documentary does well. And somebody says, "Do you want to make another one?" I'm going to go yes, but
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I want you to also fund my feature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, harder to, it's <laughs> harder to convince conservative investors to invest in fiction, right? To invest in narrative feature films. Right. That's that's the next frontier, and that's what we as you know as people that are not leftists that want to combat what's coming out of Hollywood, that's what we have to do next, and that's what the Daily Wire is doing. That's the uh, why I was so excited to be participating in, uh, you know, Terror on the Prairie, the Daily Wire movie because that's what they're doing.
1: And I think they found success and Run, Hide, Fight was successful for them as well. So yeah, I think at some point the investors will figure out that the fiction stuff is actually worth investing in. A couple last questions, Nick. I have to say, from a personal perspective, I feel helpless a lot these days, and I try to kind of beat down that sensation. And I think when people watch Capital Punishment, there's going to be a similar sentiment that, it, as you know, as powerful as it is, that oh my gosh, this is our government, this is wrong. What do we do? And you know, the average guy or gal doesn't have a lot of resources, and you know, not everyone can make a movie like you're doing. And even your movie is not going to change society in a, in a you know a Thanos snap. How do right. you kind of keep uh, maybe a more optimistic spirit in, in current times, because there's a lot to a lot to feel terrible about,
2: yeah. well, there's a lot to be said for just being a happy warrior and just going, "Look, this is the truth is on our side. i'm not I'm not trying to lie to anybody. They are. I'm not trying to deceive anyone. They are. So I think that all we can do really is is not comply and use our voices and and say what we think and shine light on this subject i mean an example i just spent better part of two two months in uh, in montana before that i was about a month in tennessee and it's totally normal there you know there's a few people that have masks on but no one's screaming at them to take them off you know and, and most of the people don't wear masks there aren't checking ids to go to a restaurant you know uh, and and that sort of thing and it's like coming back to california and you know and walking into a grocery store and i'm the only one that is not wearing a mask and all the other zombies are just like happy to to put on their masks and do as they're told and i i think what we have to start doing is just being honest and saying i'm not going to do that i'm not going to go to this restaurant if you're going to check my stupid uh vaccine card I'm just not gonna participate in your destruction of society. And I think the more of us that do that, the more of us that just say, I'm not going to comply. If we keep doing that, it's gonna catch on. Now, obviously, the government is gonna get worse and worse. They're gonna to try to make everything that we, you know, everything illegal. They're gonna to try to put you in jail if you don't wanna show your vaccine card and all that. We just have to keep saying the truth as as much as we can and with as much good humor as we can and face these people down. That's what we have to do.
1: Yeah. A, a quick note before I let you go. I just got a screening <clears throat> excuse me, a screening invitation for a movie and it said not only do I need to show my vaccine card that I've been vaccinated that I have to also separately take a covid screening test and show the result before going into that screening. So I'm yeah. not going to go to that screening. I, I think that's kind of I mean, just, a few steps too just far. Just
2: that alone, Christian, it doesn't make any sense. If you've been vaccinated, why do they have to test you? Unless the vaccine doesn't work.
1: <laughs> which, which you can. The whole
2: thing is madness. <laughs> yeah. It's all insane. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the CDC uh, you know, ba- basically was forced to release this info a couple of days ago that people who have had the COVID and, and have natural immunity There's about 150 million of us in America, and our immunity is stronger than anything a vaccine can give us. But yet, we're still checking vaccination cards like that's the ticket. Oh, but you still have to have a COVID test, even if you've been vaccinated, because the vaccination doesn't work. So it's all of its madness and we just have to we just have to find our own way each of us to stand up to it.
1: Gotcha. Well Nick, you've been doing just that for many years now. I appreciate you joining right on Hollywood. The new movie is Capital Punishment and you can watch it at capitalpunishmentthemovie.com comes out Thanksgiving Day. I think a lot of people are going to talk about it and a lot of people will be discussing what it means, what it's shared and uh, the bigger picture here. So thank you, Nick, for speaking truth to power on your terms. And you're always doing it with style and humor. I like that the best about you. All the best.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Christian. Good to talk to you again.
1: Thanks for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcast family. If you like the show, I think you'll love my upcoming book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost That Soul. If you're sick of all the things woke going on in Hollywood, I think you'll appreciate how Virtue Bombs connects all the essential dots and how it craves a return to the Hollywood that I grew up with, where storytelling reigns supreme. Man, I miss those days. Virtue Bombs is available for pre-order right now. Well, that's it for this week. I hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving and we'll circle back here Saki style next week.
2: Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email christian at hollywoodintoto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.